Welcome back to Coronavirus, The Whole Story. I'm Vivian Parry, a writer, broadcaster, UCL alumna, and your host for this podcast. Each week, we've been talking to members of the UCL community about their research and their analysis of the global pandemic that's engulfed the globe. We've been asking questions like, how's the virus spreading? And how's it impacting our mental health? All of our previous episodes are still available to download or to stream, so do give them a listen if you haven't done so already. They're great. This week, we're going to look to the past, teasing apart the surprising similarities and learnings from two previous pandemics, HIV AIDS in the 80s and the Black Death in the 14th century. My first guest is Dr. John Sabapathy, a senior lecturer in medieval history who works on the comparative history of Europe and Christendom in the 12th and 13th centuries. And yes, plague studies are one of his special interests. We also have with us Professor Graham Hart, who's a professor of sexual health and HIV research and dean of the Faculty of Population Health Sciences. Graham is a social scientist, and his research on the prevention of HIV through a needle exchange programme played a vital part in preventing spread of the disease. He's going to help us look back at the response to the AIDS epidemic and the similarities and differences with corona. My final guest this week is the peerless Professor Dame Ann Johnson, celebrated for her work with NATSL, the National Survey on Sexual Attitudes and Lifestyle, but also for her work on global health. She has many titles and roles, but for today, she's wearing her Professor of Infectious Disease hat. She's joined us today to discuss the politics of responding to pandemics and how that might have evolved over the years. And I should say that both Anne and Graham are the co-directors for the UCL Health of the Public, a new virtual school which brings multiple disciplines together to improve health for all. So let's turn to... John, first of all, the Black Death. Just remind us how it started and what the immediate consequences were. Well, what we're talking about is is really the the worst public health disaster of the the second millennium. You know, it's it's an extraordinary sequence of events, and and what we know now about that is um, actually uh, changing extremely rapidly. This is a, a really exciting area where um, both biomedical sciences and historical sciences are. Are coming together to uh, to advance our knowledge in ways that we've been struggling to understand the disease for for a long time now. We're talking about a, a highly infectious and aggressive bacteria transmitted via fleas, transmitted to rodents, marmots, gerbils, rats, um, with a with a sort of historical base uh, in Kyrgyzstan, but then um, moving and spreading out of there periodically and with human human agency in, in very important ways over different periods. So the first thing to say, I think, is that humans are not its normal host. It much, much prefers rodents. But when it can't get enough rodents and it, and it can wipe through uh, rodent populations uh, if it enters an epidemic phase, can wipe through them extremely quickly, fleas will then go in search of um, of other of other hosts, and it arrived in Europe, didn't it, in 1347? So there was a ship that returned from China to Messina in uh, Sicily. All the crew were dead. They quarantined the ship, but of course the rats scampered off uh, very quickly, and then it started to spread. And what were the consequences in terms of the deaths? Well, okay, so you're look you're looking at something that has around a sort of 80 percent uh, case fatality. 
and you're looking in, in this period in the in the sort of second half of the of the 14th century a particular spike point from from 1348 as you say when it when it first arrives but then periodic recurrences of that in the 1260 in the 1360s for instance um, and then indeed actually deep in the the 19th and even 20th centuries recent work on on Ottoman Turkey uh, is showing that there are pockets of it that's that subsist and and flare up uh, periodically for for a long long time afterwards and in Europe and indeed uh, the Middle East and indeed Africa uh, somewhere that where the, there's new research showing that uh, the plague got to as well not not something that was assumed uh, earlier on one's looking at a, a population decrease of between 40 to 60 percent so you're talking about massive massive levels of mortality as a result of this disease. Now, there are some uncanny similarities with COVID-19. So after this complete wipeout of 80% of the population, agricultural labour becomes enormously valued. So, you know, the grim reaper comes through, but you can't get a real reaper for love nor money. And they're, they're paid um, huge amounts. Just as we've got our problems with with fruit pickers now, so there were problems with um, agricultural labour, and you had them actually running off to other employers in order to get the best rates. Tell us a bit about that, John. Well, so what you see is, is absolutely that. Yes, you see that the price of the price of labour in relation to land um, increase uh, significantly, and landlords and, and members of the elite seeing their incomes decrease, seeing um, significant problems uh, with their labour and their workforce. And it's certainly true that the ability of wage labourers to move around and tout their labour for significantly higher levels is very significant as a result of, uh, of plague mortality. But that, that declines uh, gradually over time as the demography and, and, and populations recover. So although uh, one absolutely sees those sorts of dynamics uh, in play, they're relatively, relatively short-lived. The 15th century has been called the sort of golden age for, for, for wage labourers. But if one's looking over the, the longer term, those sorts of benefits that are, that are gained by wage labourers start, start to decrease. I'll read you a little bit, actually. There's a a rather snippy letter from uh, a bishop who says of these labourers, they work little, dress and feed like their betters, and they ruins us in the future. So they they have to actually pass a Labourers Act, don't they, in order to stop these labourers running off to the highest payers. That's right. And of course, um, the, the Ordinance of Labourers uh, and then the Statute of Labourers in the, the mid-14th uh, century in England, they're repeat acts. And of course, this, the obvious indication of a government uh, reissuing legislation is you know, what that signals is that the, the legislation isn't working. And so certainly at that at that point, which is where um, levels of mortality uh, are extremely serious in uh, in, in England. You're you're seeing uh, the elites and seeing the crown trying to claw back um, some of the gains that that labourers are, are managing to to leverage as a result of the plague. But as I say, they they do manage to do that over the uh, the longer term. But it, but in the in the short term, yeah, absolutely, that's a, a very significant parallel. So tell me a little about what the global impact was, because you've already said that this was a disease that came originally uh, through China. It had a global impact. What was that? Yeah, absolutely. This is a global story. 
this is an imperial story and this is a very human story. So one of the major gains that we've we've obtained through the kind of collaboration of uh, the biomedical sciences and the historical sciences um, is that we now have mapped out the phylogenetic tree for Asinia pestis. So we now we can now trace back all of all of the different branches. And what that research has done, and that is, you know, that's research that's been done really since the sequencing of the whole genome for Asinia pestis, which was done out of a, a London plague pit um, uh, from the second half of the 14th century, uh, just, just a decade ago. What that is telling us is that actually the history of the plague does not start uh, in the mid-14th century. The history of the plague starts in the early 13th century, and it is, it is the movement of the Mongol Empire south out of the Mongolian plateau and its destruction uh, of a sequence of Chinese states in, in the early 13th century that is both um, infecting initially the Mongols with the plague bacillus, which, as I said uh, earlier, you know, comes out of Kyrgyzstan, but which then uh, experiences an explosion of different branches and mutations in the virus in the early 13th century. And it's th- it's, that is the sort of big bang in, in terms of the plague. So we need to take the story back you know, uh, over, a, over 100 years to the early 13th century. And so what you have is, is, is I mean, multiple waves of, of plague. First, uh, in the 13th century, in and around Mongolia uh, and China as a function of, of those in, invasions and the destruction of those states. And then from the 14th century, the movement of Asinia pestis out of um, the, the basins that it's, it's developed and, and taken hold in along the Silk Road um, west in, into Europe. So, you know, again, one seeing, um, as we are with coronavirus, very, very interesting interactions between human populations, political activities, in this case, the, the Mongol Empire, and a pre-existing uh, zoonotic virus, but one that is jumping species, um, you know, so jumping from, from marmots, then, uh, then over into, into uh, other rodents, and as it extinguishes those populations, moving from, from sylvatic rodents into what's called commensal rodents, so rodents that, that feed on and live around human foodstuffs. So food, um, just as it is central to the narrative or emerging is central to the narrative uh, in the origins of, of, of COVID-19, is also central to uh, the narrative of how plague is, is spreading. And it's also, for instance, through uh, grain shipments and things like that, um, that we should imagine plague through infected grain shipments, that we should imagine plague as being transmitted. So, you know, this is this is very much a global story and one to do with that interface and and the, the reciprocal kind of co-development, the plague bacteria and the sylvatic uh, rodents that are its hosts, and then that movement through to through to humans. Fascinating. It's such an interesting time. And we also it's had lasting impacts in terms of the way that um, we turned away from the east at that time and looked west. But that's a discussion for later. I want to bring in um, Graham now, because I want to take us, uh, you to take us back to the beginning of HIV AIDS, the early 70s, when I know you were a mere child, but you were, you, you were a researcher then. This disease comes along. Just tell us what it was like then, that experience. 
Well, uh, the first cases were actually identified in uh, the United States in Los Angeles in 1981. There's undoubtedly had been cases before then, um, both in the States and in Africa. But the uh, Morbidity and Mortality Weekly Report, the MM. Uh, WR uh, reported five cases of uh, pneumocystis in uh, young men, uh, young gay men. So remind me what pneumocystis is? A pneumonia, and it's it's a very common bug. And normally, if your immune system is working well, there's no problem at all. But if, if you have a compromised immune system, then uh, it it causes it causes real problems. Uh, and it was the first indication that there was an, a new disease uh, around. And the first case in London uh, was. Uh, 1982, and uh, Terence Higgins was one of the first people to be uh, affected by it. And what were you doing then? I was doing my, I was at the end of my PhD, and I did a number of research jobs in in universities, and uh, it was in 1986 that I joined uh, Anne Johnson and, and colleagues at the Middlesex Hospital Medical School to work on uh, HIV and AIDS. I'd, I'd seen a, an advert uh, in, in, in The Guardian uh, for a, a researcher to, to, to work with uh, gay men and other people affected by uh, HIV, uh, and I applied for the job. And it was the best thing I ever did in terms of my career. Although I was told by uh, a senior colleague that I should just do it for a year or two and then get out and do and do something serious, uh, because it it, 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 it it wasn't going to be it wasn't going to be a career defining event, although that's precisely what it was. So did the, as you're seeing coronavirus unfold, is there anything about coronavirus this is taking you back to that time when HIV AIDS was unfolding? Well, of course, there's the fear. Uh, that was ever present. And uh, people were extremely concerned about uh, the transmissibility of HIV. Uh, so, for example, the early cases in hospitals we talk about PPE now, but that's, you know, uh, physicians uh, as well as nurses and even porters, you know, if they were going near an AIDS patient had to uh, wear full uh, protective personal uh, equipment, because there was really very little understanding of how it was transmitted in the early days. So uh, the, the, the fear was there. The social circumstances as well, you know, were were very particular. For gay men in the 1970s, there'd been gay liberation. There was a commercialization of the gay scene. There were opportunities to, to meet uh, sexual partners. Life had changed, it seemingly, for the, for the good for, for, for gay men, although stigma was very, very present still, and uh, and remained a, a problem for, for for many years, and particularly for those other groups affected, injecting drug users and haemophiliacs, who uh, also suffered from the the AIDS uh, stigma. I don't think we're seeing that in the same way, but again, it's a set of social circumstances, almost certainly uh, in China, in Wuhan, which meant that 
with a massive movement uh, from rural areas to urban areas, huge cities developing very, very quickly, but yet a lot of cultural beliefs and practices from the past still being present. Um, it, it, it meant that, uh, you know, we were seeing in coronavirus, I think, and we need more information on its beginnings, but we, we definitely see a set of social circumstances, which in a sense are, you know, helpful for the the transmission of a, of, of, a, of a virus. And, and so although they're not by any means the same, you, you do require that set of particular circumstances to, to allow that. And of course, international travel uh, has played a major role in both. Um, uh, the first cases in gay men in London were in men who traveled to Los Angeles or New York City um, very recently and had contracted the virus there. And and again, international travel has been a, a feature, clearly, of the of the movement of, of coronavirus. One of the other things that strikes me, I heard Anne Widdicombe uh, comment about how coronavirus is going to be the same as HIV/AIDS, not as bad as first feared. We just think it's a, a, a kind of astonishing uh, statement. Uh, because what we are seeing is we are seeing an, a lot of marginalised people being affected. I mean, what, of course, we saw with HIV AIDS was when it moved to com- developing countries where people, particularly with existing uh, TB, uh, it became absolutely uh, devastating. And I don't know, do you think we're going to see the same sort of thing with coronavirus? Well, we have significantly, haven't we? In the United Kingdom, uh, uh, we can see that it's um, our, our black and minority ethnic populations have been particularly uh, affected. Uh, there's undoubtedly, you know, there's the th- phrase "we're all in it together," but actually, a, a, there are some people who are much more affected. Um, they were probably uh, exposed, many of these uh, people uh, uh, so badly affected uh, in the course of their work um, uh, and exposure to the, the general public, you know, through transport and so on. Um, and so there's definitely a, a, a comparison in terms of uh, health inequalities, poorer populations being most, you know, more affected. So even now we're seeing in, the, the, you know, northeast England, uh, it's hitting particularly badly. Uh, so um, again, the health inequality seems to be a shared theme. And absolutely in, um, in sub-Saharan Africa, once again, it was the poorest people who were who were most hit by uh, HIV and AIDS. So, uh, yeah, there are certainly very real comparisons there. You're listening to Coronavirus, The Whole Story, a podcast brought to you by UCL Minds. If there's a question about coronavirus that you'd like our researchers to answer, please email us at minds at ucl.ac.uk. So, Graham, one of the things that also strikes me about uh, coronavirus and HIV/AIDS is that there was this extraordinary research effort uh, put into um, HIV at the at the beginning, and we do now have you know these uh, drugs that are very effective. Although, note everyone who says that we'll have a vaccine for coronavirus by Tuesday tea time, we still don't have an effective vaccine for HIV, do we? 
No, and that remains a, a, a real challenge. But of course, the repurposing of antiretroviral drugs, not just to uh, prevent uh, the development of AIDS in people living with HIV, but also now as a as a prophylactic, as a, as a means of prevention, the acquisition of HIV. So pre-exposure prophylaxis, taking the drugs before you have an exposure, uh, is evidently protective. Uh, trials have demonstrated this. And um, uh, there is uh, virtually no transmission when uh, people are taking the drugs su- successfully. So um, th- if they have an undetectable viral load, then um, th- they're not going to transmit uh, HIV. So the, the big change in HIV was, of course, the development of the drugs keeping that allowed people t- to live beyond the the 10 years that the, the, the virus seemed to take to, to kill people. Um, and in fact, now, we believe, uh, live a full, <coughs> an, uh, a full life. But uh, the big change after those drugs were introduced in 1996 is more recent, uh, where they're found to be actually preventive. Uh, so uh, we don't have a vaccine, but we're in a far, far better place than we were when I was seeing friends and colleagues uh, dying in the uh, late 80s and uh, early 90s. And the effect of those deaths is comparable to has what's, what happens in coronavirus, of course, to those most affected. Uh, not only their, their, their families, of course, uh, with those terrible uh, f- uh, losses, but also the medical staff who uh, had to, ha- have to uh, see see patients die that shouldn't that shouldn't be dying, uh, and so that was that was the the real sense at the at the time. Going back to HIV. So, Anne, you were, as Graham said, you were also working um, in HIV at the time um, it started. Tell us how you first heard about that and and the impact. Well, my first uh, discussions about HIV really arose when I was doing my MSc at the School of Hygiene in 1984. And I well remember the very packed lecture theatre at the London School where we were given you know, the first lecture on the first uh, handful of cases of AIDS in uh, in the UK. And there was this, you know, tremendous combination of fear, but also that sense of um, interest and, you know, excitement about this new curious disease. Now, one forgets, of course, how incredibly stigmatised it was. I was looking for, I was training in public health and looking for an academic job. Um, and quite by chance, I... Uh, got to meet Mike Ardler, who was then uh, at the Middlesex and uh, Professor of Genital Urinary Medicine, and was looking for a, an epidemiologist to study sexually transmitted infections in HIV. And I went to visit him. And as, as you say, the rest is history. I went like Graham for a one-year job, uh, advised by a senior professor in London who said, oh, you don't want to work on that. You might catch it from reading about it. Um, and went on to, uh, to, to get involved in this job. But I think one of the things that I remember most of all and is highly relevant today is that on the science front, you know, the real sense of excitement was who was going to isolate the virus first, who was going to develop the first antibody test, who was going to uh, you know, make progress on the vaccine, who was going to get the first cure, etc. And that was where all the focus of the activity was. And I was sort of fascinated, as I am actually now, at the 
that the sort of lack of interest at the fundamental nature of almost all epidemics, which we've heard um, talked about, is that epidemics arise because of the interaction between the biology of the organism that infects us and, and the behaviour of the populations in, into which it's dropped. And by behaviour, I, I, I mean that in the sense of how we live together, population density, uh, um, uh, you know, how we fly around the world, how, all the things you've heard described, our economic relationships. In the case of HIV, of course, the behaviour that was the, was the key behaviour was, of course, sexual behaviour. And that was, in the 1980s, a highly stigmatised topic. I mean, things that we take for granted that are talked about in, in polite society were just not part of the discourse in the 80s. And that fundamentally changed things. Um, but it was very difficult to get people to pay any attention to um, what I saw as as the sort of public health intervention, you know, the, the thing that well, you talk about the, the outbreak of cholera in Broad Street and uh, the, the importance of taking the, the handle off the Broad Street pump, that sort of interventions was so important, but that was absolutely not very glamorous. And I, I, I just want to come to testing in particular, because right at the very beginning, it wasn't thought proper to test for uh, HIV because at the time there was no cure. And so the only way that we knew of uh, the prevalence was actually through um, antenatal testing because everybody was uh, had their blood tested. And so the idea was to look for HIV at, you know, anonymously to see what the prevalence was. And we seem to be in a similar pickle with testing now in some ways because we still really are blind about the number of people who have it. Yeah, so, well, this is a hugely important issue. It's fascinating, isn't it? But the reasons for not testing were totally different. So in HIV, the reason for people not getting tested for HIV was that we, we didn't then understand the natural history of the disease. Actually, we don't understand it for this disease either, for, for covid um, we uh, people didn't know what a test meant, whether it meant you were immune, familiar, isn't it? Um, yes. Or whether it meant you were infected. Nobody knew the natural history, so how many people would get HIV or the incubation period or anything. And as there was no treatment, many people felt that getting tested was just too stigmatised. Now, in fact, the first studies that demonstrated the extent of the epidemic were carried out at the Middlesex Hospital in uh, mid-1980s on, on anonymised stored blood samples. And that, of course, was incredibly important because what it showed, and that's why the studies on COVID are so important, what it showed was that in 1982, the prevalence of HIV in gay men in London was, I think, 2 or 3%. And two years later, it was approaching 20%. So wow. there had been this enormous, by 1984, something like you know 18 to 20% of the gay men coming into the clinic in at the Middlesex were HIV infected. The equivalent figure in San Francisco was 50%. And we had actually had this enormous silent epidemic because, um, of course, the cases of AIDS didn't, didn't appear till at the earliest, you know, 18 months later. Uh, fast forward to COVID, we see exactly the same situation in some ways because, of course, I mean, at the time frame's altogether different, but we don't really see the first deaths occurring till you know, three or four weeks after uh, after infection. Um, and uh, during which time, because now we know about everybody understands the case reproduction number, if everybody everybody's infected is infecting three people over the, over that course of three or four weeks, one infection can, can have led to hundreds of infections. 
so, you know, by the time we began seeing deaths, we probably already had multiple introductions and multiple transmissions. We also were not really, it was the first, as I remember, the first death in the UK was somebody in hospital who had been tested as part of a new surveillance scheme for pneumonias and was really tested not on suspicion of having the disease, but part of extended surveillance. And that was what you, when I remember that first case thinking, wow, this is somebody who hasn't been in Italy or in China, has had no contacts, their only, their only risk is, you know, they've been in and out of hospital. And then you realise that this this person, you know, there must have been several um, successive transmissions before that person became became sick. And of course, what that also demonstrated is something that, you know, now that we have managed through lockdown to um, change people's behaviour fundamentally, that's essentially how we've achieved control, uh, that stopped uh, the, the infection between households, doesn't stop the infection within households, and critically, it hasn't stopped the infection within care homes or indeed within hospitals. So it's interesting that in all this sort of focus on biomedical solutions, as important as they are, we've really let things go on, which um, particularly transmission in these high-risk environments and there's a that 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 could have been you know in now in retrospect of course better controlled, and these are not glamorous things. I mean, I remember back in the eighties coming back from San Francisco, and saying to people, you know, we really should be promoting condoms in gay men, and they looked at me and they said, well, condoms? We can't have people using condoms. You know, the condom might break. They might not use it properly. Um, we should tell people sort of not to have sex at all. It's completely unrealistic. In fact, what eventually happened was massive increase in, in condom use and so on. Uh, and here we are in the same interesting situation in the UK where we are still struggling with whether or not we should have um, widespread use of masks, even though they are imperfect. We, we, we advocate hand washing, which is also imperfect, but we're very reluctant to advocate masks because we haven't, they, they might leak and this, that and the other. But you know, there's a lot of sort of a lot of discussion about quite um, high tech solutions when some of the low tech solutions, notably systems, real sort of systems improvement in environments where you get a lot of transmission in healthcare settings and so on to stop transmission between uh, staff and patients, staff and staff. And these are all the things which are which really require um as yet again, good understanding of human behaviours and some logic about how viruses and and humans interact if you're going to intervene. I mean, that's so interesting. And I wanted to ask you all now, um, you know, if we could compare and uh, contrast all the three uh, pandemics we've been thinking of, uh, plague, uh, HIV and uh, covid and I wanted to ask you whether you thought that we were improving in our responses. Um, is there something that we are consistently failing uh, to learn? So, Graham, let me turn to you first. Is there one thing that we just seem to be failing to learn from history? It's the othering of uh, those that are affected. Um, and so uh, for a lot of people, they felt protected because they weren't gay because they weren't a drug user because they weren't a haemophiliac but actually as Anne says it, it became a heterosexual uh, problem and uh, indeed in in Africa an epidemic there's this idea uh, somehow early early on in coronavirus well you know this is 
we've had SARS before. Um, uh, it's it's stopped in uh, Asia. Uh, it's not going to come over. It, it's limited to to those those people. And it, it's it's I'm sure uh, John might come in on this. Uh, that it's the it's the sense that we always seek to let me see pass it on to somebody else, not in a, uh, a transmission way, but the responsibility is somehow. Uh, belongs with others and and I think you see you see that and it was quite it's quite interesting uh, uh, recently um, somebody was in, in in China somebody from the UK and actually people were really unhappy to see somebody who'd obviously come from uh, Britain in China because were they going to be bringing the virus with them so this it's this othering uh, of uh, uh, and uh, associated with blame and stigma which we just i we just don't seem to get out of john i i imagine that you might have something to say about you know apart from don't mess with rats <laughs> but it's it's don't mess with animals and their uh, and their habitats because all of these things of course have have uh, a zoonotic origin in other words they've come from wild animals and well, yeah. I mean, I, I, I mean, the, the the history of of interactions between humans as a species and and, and other species and and the diseases flipping back and forth between them is is obviously a, a very long one indeed. And the degree to which one can sensibly say, you know, one should sort of stick to one's one's sort of small uh, ecological niche is, is is obviously one that is is not realistic to advocate. But if it's not realistic to advocate, what one certainly has to acknowledge is that. There are consequences from from disturbing um, reservoirs of um, bacterial or viral diseases that can then move around, and the the list of diseases um, that are that are zoonotic like that that have produced these uh, these these epidemics from from species flipping is is very frightening indeed. And I think there's every good reason to expect that the window between these sorts of epidemic events is going to decrease. Uh, over over the future, I mean, what, as one sees uh, increased human uh, intrusion into ecological spaces that have not been explored uh, or not been uh, exploited in the ways that uh, you know we are seeking to, whether that's in terms of deforestation in, in Southeast Asia or in uh, in South America, um, there's there's every reason to expect the those windows and the sort of risk assessments that governments are conducting to. To evaluate um, the the likelihood of these events as getting uh, getting greater and greater. So, uh, Anne, I, I wonder what you th- think we haven't learned before that we really ought to be we ought to have learned by now. You know, you have to understand the basics of how how a bug is transmitted. Think carefully about it. Know where you know constantly looking at where it's being transmitted and trying to keep ahead of the game because but. Every severe outcome, you've almost always got a sort of silent epidemic that you haven't noticed. So going after where that epidemic is, thinking carefully about really the modes of transmission and going in um, hard after those to think through you know, what are the likely situations um, that are going to, going to spread this virus without necessarily a complex model, but just the fundamentals. And I always fear that although the scientific community has really risen to the challenge that we we really have to make sure that the investment that goes into the treatment and care services is hugely important but the similar investment has to go in the public health services 
that can, you know, whose specialty it is particularly to know where the epidemic is and to do some of the shoe leather, shoe leather work, which has been brought to the fore in the raid on the news recently, to find out where this bug is and to, you know, figure out the basic principles of how to reduce its transmission. It's very unlikely we're going to stamp this out in the near term or maybe in the long term, but we're going to have to change quite a lot of systems if we're going to have you know, reasonable lives to suppress it um, in ways which are not about anything complex. They really are about some of the basics of how to stop viruses passing on. You know, we, we saw that in AIDS. We saw it in the building of the water systems and the sewage in the 19th century. And that, it's interesting to hear reflections on what it was that stopped the plagues, really, because clearly that whole relationship between um, uh, between rats and humans and so on was very much related to the quality of the environments in which people live. And once again, now it's the quality of people's environments, whether that be a care home, a hospital, or indeed an crowded hospital, or an overcrowded um, home in 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 a poorer community, or indeed an overcrowded bus or or whatever. And if we really have to work very hard on those environments for, for COVID, if we're going to be able to sort of suppress transmission uh, sufficiently to get on with our, our lives, because for this particular pandemic, the impacts are not just direct. They are, as we've heard for other, uh, other pandemics, indirect as well, because we are going to see quite a lot of indirect deaths from people not going into the health system for a number of things, undetected cancers, indirect deaths um, uh, arising in the longer run, from conditions like mental mental illness as a result of economic stress, unemployment, and also the, the sort of psychological costs of lockdown. And we have to measure all those against the direct impact of the virus while doing our best on the less glamorous front, as it's often seen of public health, to really reduce transmission in um, all the ways we can, we can think about and the most efficient ways that we can achieve that. But alongside a good surveillance system. Mm. So what I'm, uh, I, my new campaign is uh, to put public health doctors on a, a pedestal because they're often kind of denigrated and looked down on as people who deal with drains and smells. And actually, they have such a vital role to play. And if any of you want to read something which is so um, uh, uh, evocative of what we're living through now, can I recommend a journal of the plague year, which was uh, written as a as a novel by Daniel Defoe about 60, plague in 1665? And again, it's all the same kind of measures that we think of quarantine, just laid out in 1665, um, exactly as we're thinking of hand washing and and uh, lockdown uh, now. Uh, it's been such a a, a, a treat uh, having you all on the uh, whole story uh, this week. It's, I could go on talking for ages and I suspect our listeners are going to say, 
damn her, why is she stopping this already? But I'm afraid we've got to the end of our time. So, ladies and gentlemen, you have been listening to Coronavirus, the whole story. This episode was presented by myself, Vivian Parry, produced by UCL with support from the UCL Health of the Public and UCL Grand Challenges, and edited by the splendid Caris Bradley. Our guests today were Dr John Zabapathy, Professor Graham Hart, and the peerless Professor Dame Anne Johnson. If you'd like to hear more of these podcasts from UCL Minds, subscribe wherever you download your podcasts or visit ucl.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. This podcast is brought to you by UCL Minds, bringing together UCL knowledge, insights and expertise through events, digital content and activities that are open to everyone. It's been a really terrific session today. I hope to be with you again soon. And thank you to all three of you. You've been terrific.